Erlang is a functional concurrent programming language. Joe Armstrong is one of the designers of Erlang. Joe, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Erlang was originally designed within Ericsson in the 1980s to support distributed and highly available applications, but more recently it has seen high-profile uses in applications like WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. So just to set the context for listeners who have never heard of Erlang, it is uh, widely used in modern software. But So let's start out. Why has Erlang persisted as such a popular tool for communication platforms? Um, it's, I don't know. I mean, it's because it was designed, it was, it was designed to build, um, telecommunications infrastructures with, I mean, it was designed for switching software for, for telephones, for telephones. Um, and the nature of that problem is that you have hundreds of thousands of people all talking to each other and all connected to each other. So, and that's the nature of the problem that you want to solve with, with massive messaging systems today. Right. And so we'll get to the present, but first let's, I guess let's go back in time to the 1980s. So uh, Ericsson was surviving by selling the Axe Telecom switch. It was a really good business. Yeah. And Ericsson had its own processor, its own programming language, its own operating system, its own software development environment. Why had Ericsson built all of these things itself rather than using uh, like other software? But there wasn't any other software when it, when, when the AXE was invented. I mean, there, there, ah. there weren't any alternatives. What, what were the alternatives? The, the, that the AXE was the first object, as far as I know, it was the first object-oriented hardware there was in the world. Um, it predated, uh, um, I mean, it, it comes from a technology from about 19, or oh, the AKF, about 1974 was the first one. And then, yeah, I mean, Ericsson was making the first the first. Uh, to, together with uh, AT and T, the first uh, switching systems in the world. So there were no, there were no, there was no worldwide net. There was no DNS. There were no worldwide networks. So Ericsson was yeah, building these it, networks and inventing the stuff as it went the, along. <laughs> it's easy for me to take the open source world for granted. I guess there was no open source. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are the software requirements for a telecom switch? Um, that. Highly reliable, highly reliable. I mean, uh, we actually the, the AXE we had to pay had to pay fines if it was down for more than four minutes a year. So, so it was always kind of drummed into you. The uh, the whole system hasn't got to crash for more than four minutes a year, and you have to you have to roll in the software upgrades without stopping the thing. So, so I mean, it was unacceptable to stop it to change the software, and yeah, those are the main things. Oh, and it's it, it's got. You know, real time response has to has to respond to things within within a, a couple of milliseconds and so on. Okay, and so prior to the development of Erlang, Ericsson's programming language was called Plex. Yes. What were the problems with Plex? Oh, Plex was a Plex was a more or less, more or less a sort of real time basic, if you like. It it, uh, it it was more or less you can think of it as an assembler language. Um, so it had no memory management and uh, it was very, very difficult to program in. Mm. And, and, it, How did- and, it, and it was designed at a time when, when uh, machines had very, very little memory. So uh, Plex programs had to fit into kilobytes of memory and, and so on. And uh, how, how did Plex manage failures? Um, more, well, it, 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 
It didn't do them in, in uh, software, did it? In hardware, it had it had two processors which were lockstep, and um, it compared them all the time. And if one processor crashed, it just went over to the second one. So, uh, but if the software was incorrect, um, that that software would crash. But it would only affect one person. It wouldn't affect uh, lots of people because everybody, mm. everybody. It, it was like a register machine with. Um, each user had their own set of registers. These were hardware registers. So a Plex Exchange could have 100,000 users or, and, and each user would have their own set of registers. So, so their software would crash. And hopefully it wouldn't crash uh, anybody else's software. Okay, so in the 1980s, while searching for a replacement to Plex, um, there, were, there were lots of experiments within telecom uh, with different languages. There was Lisp and Prolog and Parlog and some others. And in the domain of telecom, what were the valuable features of these different languages like Lisp and Prolog? The, they were, I think, the automatic memory management, that they were garbage-collected languages and that they were symbolic languages. So you never lost control. And um, you didn't have absolute pointers and things like that, which may, makes makes changing the code rather easy. Um, if, if you have language with... Uh, statically allocated memory and, and, and in particular pointers, um, it's very difficult to move the code and, and to, to manage applications. Um, basically, oh, you, want, okay. you, you, want, you want kind of pointer-free languages so that you can move things. If you've got pointers, you have to move all the pointers and you, you absolutely don't want the pointers pointing off the machine because what they point into might crash or, or might not be available. So, so you have to... What kind, of, of, what kind of concurrency support did these languages have? Uh, not at all. I mean, Prolog, okay. and, Prolog and Lisp and so on aren't, aren't concurrent languages. They're sequential languages. Okay. Well, and so that's, I guess that raises a problem because one requirement for good telephony is that you have this granularity of concurrency. Yeah. Uh, like you have, you, I think I read, you know, you, you wanted one asynchronous telephony process that could be represented by one process in the language. Yes. Yeah. I mean, for okay. each, for each asynchronous activity that you observe in the real world you want to map that onto one process so if your problem requires you to have a million processes then then you should have a million processes it shouldn't be a, a kind of software penalty that says you're not allowed to have a large number of processes um most programming languages don't have concurrency they don't have they don't have any notion of, of processes or anything like that and and so they use the the concurrency mechanisms that are available in the operating system. And they're very coarse grain and they're very, very expensive. So so you get a bit of a mismatch between what you'd like to do and what you can do. So basically, all virtually all programming languages are sequential. Um, and and, and that they, they force you to think about the world in a sequential way. Um, that, that's why they're not appropriate for, for, for programming problems where there's a lot of natural concurrency. So was Erlang shaped by these these two like on the one side you had these experiments with lisp and prolog where you see oh there's automatic memory management um and symbolic logic uh but on the other hand we have this requirement for this one-to-one mapping of telephony processes to language processes was it the merger of those two ideas that shaped erlang yeah yeah and then and then i mean i was when when i Joined Ericsson, I, I didn't have any experience with that kind of thing. So there were older engineers who, there was a guy, um, Seva Torstendal, who'd, who'd designed a Eri Pascal, which was, uh, 
at the version of Pascal with parallel processes. And he, he kept wandering into the lab and, and, and so, no, no, it's got to do it this way. And mm, we tried that, didn't work. <laughs> do it this way. I mean, all kinds of things like, like whether message passing is synchronous or asynchronous or all the kind of semantics of what happens if you send a message to something and, you know, it existed when you sent it, but it died before the message got there. What, what should you actually do? And the, the kind of semantics of those things were... Uh, people had thought about that for, for a lot longer than I'd thought about them. And, and there was a kind of tradition of kind of, well, do it this way and, and it should work. Try it this way. And we tried that and it didn't work. So did your naivete help with your development of Erlang? Um, oh, probably. I should think so. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Can you, can you talk more about the... Because, of course, I mean, you, you say when you developed Erlang, because that's, that's a, a kind of after-the-event reconstruction, because at the time I didn't know I was doing something that would, would, would blossom in the way it did blossom. I mean, you don't think – you're just doing experiments with a different way of programming, and you don't really imagine that uh, – there wasn't even a language to start with. It became a language. Yeah, I mean, that sounds really interesting. Let's talk more about the creative process. I mean, how, how did Erlang germinate? Um, well, actually, actually the, we had a um, MD110, which was a, a PABX, private automatic branch exchange, a small telephone exchange, which a guy called Peer Hederland had, had modified some hardware so we could control it with a VAX 11750. And uh, we put Berkeley's BSD on, on the VAX. And then basically we, we said, okay, so let's let's just get every programming language we can find that will run on a VAX or on a Sun workstation, because we also have some Sun workstations, and uh, just try and program telephony and just, just see what the programs look like. So so we did that, and that, that was a, a lab experiment. There were four or five of us involved, and, and we each chose two or three different programming languages, and we, we programmed the same problem. And, and then certain patterns kind of emerged, and uh, I got thinking i i was actually well it was a bit of an accident really i i um i was i made a model of telephony in small talk because i liked the you know this notion of small talk small talk's got objects and and uh, you send messages to things at least that's the abstract model you don't really do that you, you make uh, uh, method calls and um i ordered uh, I was running this on a Sun workstation and it was so slow that when it garbage collected, I I, I literally went and had, took a coffee break because it took about 20 minutes to garbage collect. So you'd run this program and it would garbage collect. So, oh, I'm going to have a cup of coffee. And uh, I got fed up with this. So we ordered um, a Tektronics small talk machine. It's one of the first hardware small talk machines. And it had a long delivery time, about three months or something like that. And during the time uh, while I was waiting for it, I didn't do any more small talk. And I was just using the small talk notation on the blackboard to to describe how this worked. And then another guy said, well, that's almost prologue. Because it was a sort of algebra I'd made. And, and he introduced me to prologue. And I didn't know prologue. So, so I rewrote it all in prologue. And then I thought, well, that's very nice. But the trouble with prologue was... I, I could only describe one call, and, and we got dozens of calls going on in parallel. So, so I thought oh, I'll modify Prolog so, so that it's got some concurrency. So, so I just made a meta interpreter in Prolog and, and made it 
a sort of parallel prologue. And, and that was the start of everything. I was, I was also thinking about errors um, a lot because I thought uh, errors, I, I've never thought you can get all the errors out of a system um, when you when you build it and test it. it it's going to crash at runtime. And so I, I was thinking you need, you need pretty sophisticated ways of covering after you've observed an error. I mean, uh, I've just given up the idea of, of getting rid of the errors while testing or you know, for any formal methods, they're just not up to it. So, so I thought we need we need all sorts of hooks to sort of be able to introspect errors after they've occurred and, and put the system into a safe state. So it's a kind of so combination what, of that that, that that became Erlang. And was there a certain point where these, like this loose collection of ideas, cohered into like a clear spec for a language? No, not really. It it it, it sort of. Kind of converged. Uh, there, I mean, there's never really. I mean, this might sound strange, but the, there's there's never really been a clear spec of the language. There's always been a, a, a sort of understanding of what it did, and, and then um, we we had some formal methods. People trying to write a really formal spec of it, and, and they gave, they gave up. It's was, it was too difficult. I mean, there are some really deep problems. That are, what what are what are the deep problems? Why can't you formalize the spec? Um, well, you can. Well, you you can approximate. You can approximate it, right? But you probably couldn't write a fully well because you you run into impossibility pretty soon. I mean, the the um, uh, there's, there's a I I I must um, put this into some of my lectures. There's a there's a, a nice motto. Uh, you might have heard it. Um, let, let me think. Um, it goes like ex- you say exactly once is impossible. Have you heard that? Exactly yeah, once is I, impossible. Yeah, I think I've heard that. Do you know what that means? Uh, exactly once processing. No, it, it, is it's impossible. It, well, to, if you send a message between two processes, you know, to, to guarantee that it, it is sent exactly once is impossible. So you can you now this, it's it's quite easy to to see. Well, I mean, the the two things that are possible at least once is possible or at most once is possible <laughs> right is this like the byzantine general problem? well it's like if, if, if you imagine a message going between two two systems um in order to make it fault tolerant you would have to have a log right so you can log after after the message has been written and then you write to the log and then and then afterwards and you write to the log before you write it and you write it and then you look in the log and you, if it crashes you go back and you look in the log and if you examine all the all the scenarios where it can crash you you find wait a moment this this you know, if it, if it crashes before we've written to the log or if it crashes afterwards, you just can't do it. So, I mean, to, to get at least once is easy. I mean, you send you if you send one message, right, it'll either get there or it won't. So so that's sorry, at most once. So, so it's either zero or one times. Yeah, that's quite easy. Right. And uh, sorry, that's at most once. At least once is also quite easy. Just you just send loads and loads and loads. Flood it with messages until you get some response, and then then you know that it was at least once. I mean, it might have been a dozen, but you you, you have this continue. But exactly once is impossible. So when you go from sequential programming, where exactly once is everywhere, right? When you when you call a function, you don't have, you have no trouble proving that it, the, the the function got called once. But when you replace that by a remote procedure call, the semantics of it change radically and turn into something that's impossible. <laughs> Ah, uh, okay, I see. So, so, uh, so suddenly you have 
well, if you're trying to write down the semantics of, of, of message passing and things like that, you run into all sorts of problems. So, so for example, people ask questions like there was a very nice question on the mailing list that said, is, is uh, message passing between airline processes reliable? And, and Per Hederland, he was the guy who, who he, he said, he wrote back and he said, yes, if you believe that TCP is reliable. <laughs> so, so you always kind of got this like, well, is message passing reliable? Well, yeah, if you actually, you know, does anybody believe that TCP is reliable? Or, or does that, well, do you believe that two, you know, two-phase commit or three-phase commit or ten-phase commit is, is, you know, proof that something's happened? No, because mathematically infinite-phase commit doesn't work. So you run into these kind of black holes of complexity, which you don't see in, well, you see a completely different set of problems when you're building distributed systems. Yeah, you certainly do. And if you want to kind of write those down in a formal way, you know, things like leadership election are suddenly, you know, the Paxos algorithm and things like that, they're suddenly very, very difficult. Yeah. Did you anticipate distributed computing was going to become so important and so difficult when you were writing Erlang? No, no. No, I mean, there were lots of uh, sort of nice surprises that came later. Oh, look, we can program multi-cores. <laughs> they just sort of yeah. work. They just kind of work. And, uh, oh. And I, I think... Um, what I didn't realize was was uh, which only came later was the the realization that architectures that uh, allow things to be fault tolerant are exactly the same as architectures which make things scalable because mm. you know if, if you if you want to make things fault tolerant you you make lots of small isolated things which are completely independent and if you want to make things scalable you make lots of isolated things that are completely independent so so architecturally they're very very similar in fact I've, i now view them as exactly the same and and that was then i learned later that the tandem computer um was built for fault tolerance um this was a, in in the mid 80s and uh, it actually found its biggest markets in in um building scalable systems not fault tolerant systems. It was designed for fault tolerance. It was used for scalability, and that's exactly what's happened with Erlang. The, the the kind of WhatsApp and things. They're not using it for the for the fault tolerance. They're using it for the scalability. Mm. And it's and it's because the design method forces you to. I mean, it forces you to. It's, it's really rather simple. You you when you design something, you just break it down into processes based on the natural concurrency. So you might start off with one one process per user. It'll usually be more, say. When, when we were doing telephony, it was six processes per user. So, so, and then you say, okay, so six processes per user, they're pretty well localized. And, and then you say, well, how many, how many processes can I run per processor? Well, I don't know, maybe a million, I don't know, a million, two million, three million processes per machine, per physical machine. And, and then you put that on one machine, it's maybe a four core, eight core machine, and the Erlang runtime will just sort of move these processes around onto onto the cores. You don't need to worry about that kind of thing. And and then you just partition it and put these, you know, say put, what's that? You've got a million processes and six processes per user. You say 160,000 users per machine or something. And then we got need to dimension it for a million people. So, so buy six machines. There's a bit of plumbing to wire it all up. And there you go. It's working. Want ten yeah. million? Just you know, it, it scales scales horizontally. Then once you once you've got that architecture, but you need that architecture. If, if you so didn't have that architecture, you'd you'd be. You'd, I mean, it's like Node.js or something like that, which doesn't have that ability. You see, you're putting everything into into one process. 
So, so when your machine isn't powerful enough, you, you've got to partition the problem. And you go, oh dear, hmm, how do you do that? So it's uh, that partitioning is, is, is done early in, in the airline design process. Yeah, so let's let's talk more about the the language level concurrency within our language, like how the programmer implements concurrency. Yeah. Um, can, can you give a high-level description for um, how the programmer should be thinking about concurrency and how, how uh, the programmer models things? Well, there are, there are yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I'm, it, it's ridiculously easy. I mean, you've, 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 you've got three primitives. You've got spawn, creates a parallel process, and it returns a, a process ID. And then you've got send, two arguments, um, the name of the process and the, the message you want to send to it. And, and you've got receive. Receive is just a set of patterns which pattern match over the, over the thing you send. That's it. There's right. no, there's and no, so, you know, there's no locks, there's no mutexes, there's, there's no threads, there's nothing. And all the processes are, have their own private memory. They can't access each other, you know, dang, no dangling pointers and no guarantee of message delivery. So, so, I mean, that's pretty much how the world is. So if you can, if you can, that is actually true object oriented programming. If you think about it, I mean, I, 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 I would claim that Erlang is the only object-oriented language there is. Really? Yeah, because because all the I mean, Java and C plane, they're not object-oriented. They, they, Why they, not? They, they they violate isolation. Objects are supposed to be isolated. They're not. Mm. The Erlang what, processes what you, are isolated. You, well, you can't. You know, how, how, I mean, it doesn't doesn't matter if you if you can put two applications in the same workspace and one destroys the other in some sense. They're not isolated. Hmm. Okay, I'm still you know, not clear what you mean. What what do you, what what prevents what makes Java and C not object oriented? But the, because they don't they don't have see because the, they don't really, well they don't have processes to start with. They're objects. Their objects aren't aren't true concurrent objects. It's okay provided you don't. If you want to model something like time or a clock, something something goes wrong inside them. You know, think about concurrent programming in Java. It's, it's horrendously difficult. Yes. You know, concurrency, shared memory, all these things don't, don't, don't go together. If you, if you want concurrency, you might as well throw shared memory out of the window because you can do it, but it's just so extraordinarily difficult that, that virtually nobody can get it right. Mm. I mean, okay. I mean, I mean we, we're, we're, we're quite happily using a message-passing paradigm, aren't we? you are you're in america somewhere and i'm in sweden and we're talking so we, can mo- <laughs> so we can model the talking as messages yeah and i don't know what's in your brain and you don't know what's in my brain just imagine the complexity if we had to you know we were sort of forced to have our brains somehow kind of surgically conjoined so that we could see each other's <laughs> thoughts i mean it would be terrible that's true um okay so but and also in terms of airlines so every process as a mailbox and the mailbox is like a queue of messages that have been sent from other processes. That's right, yes. What, what's the interaction between a process and its mailbox? Um, well, it's that receive primitive. In send sends a message that gets put in the mailbox of the process you sent the message to and receive is, is just an operator that goes and looks in the mailbox. And says, if I say receive a symbol ABC or something. I, it's just like the guy walking out to the post and looking in his mailbox and is there an ABC in it? Yeah, there is. So it lifts it out of the mailbox. 
Got it. Um, so could you give uh, maybe an, an example for uh, what types of messages I know this is a naive question, but what types of messages you would want to send between different Erlang processes? Anything. I mean, you, you, it's higher order. You can send functions. Um, you can send data. You know, send an entire database in a single message or um, anything you feel like. There's no, there's no marshalling or unmarshalling. Or no, you know, it's just, just works. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Send anything you feel like. An entire right. operating system or, a, you know, messages can be anything from, you know, you could say, tell me the time of day or what, what time is it? And it says it's uh, two o'clock in the afternoon or send me an entire operating system. You know, or it's a gigabyte or whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. Just all works. Yeah. Um, so Erlang also offers dynamic code upgrading, which means that you can yeah. change the system code itself without stopping the system. Yeah. How, how is this implemented? Um, that's, well... This is one of these kind of bugs, I think. <laughs> every, every module has, if, if you're familiar with a language with objects or modules or anything like that, um, in Erlang, um, you can have two versions of the module, right? Um, and depending on the syntax of how you call a module, you can you can get the, the version of the module that uh, you used when the first time you called that module. Or you can get the latest version, but there's a, there's only those two options. So if you if you start off with a let's call a module X, and have one process and it's it's calling this module X, it, it will use the module X, and then I start a second process uh, and I change X, I put a new version of X in. I can still call it X in the code. The first version will be using this old version of X, the original version, and the new process will be using the new version of X, and the two will never get confused. Okay, so, so that allows us to inject new code into the system without changing the names of the modules, and they can behave differently. Um, because we didn't want to go, the reason for that, we didn't want to change all the, all the system software when you're making an upgrade. You know, you've got a module called Foo or something, and it's got 500 routines in, and you decide it's wrong, and, and you, somebody's running this stuff that calls Foo, and then you want to start a new bit of software that's also going to call Foo, but Foo was slightly wrong. <laughs> we don't want to go and – you could change it to Foo 1, but that would be an awful mess. They'd have to change all their software. So we just call it Foo, and then the, there's, there's some namespace things. Now, what's wrong with that? I mean, it works fine. It was that the restriction of having two versions was due to the fact we, we implemented this in 1986. Um if I had to do it again today, I, I would have an indefinite number of versions and, and just garbage collect away the ones that you can't reach anymore. So, right. so basically, when when you start a process and you go get your code, you go get your code. You sort of freeze, you freeze that code in, and, and you'll run with that until you die. And then a new guy coming along and he starts a process. He'll get his new version of the code. They might all have the same names as the other version, but they they, they could be different. And that's just just to make life easy. Well, so getting it works back, very well, actually. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so so getting back to the kind of historical story, once Erlang was developed, how did uh, how, what was the process to uh, replace Ericsson systems, or the, at least the Plex systems, with Erlang? Um, there wasn't a process. Um, <laughs> it all happened by accident. Um, the there was a very large project called AXEN to do exactly what you say, to, to um, 
Well, there wasn't a project to replace the programming language. That that would imply that that, that you were going to keep the hardware the same and uh, change the programming language. There were never projects like that. Um, what there were were large projects that were basically going to change everything. They were going to change the hardware. They were going to change the software, um, the whole infrastructure, because the, the technology was kind of moving forward. So, so there was a, a massive project called AXEN. The, the, the N stood for new, the new AXE, where they were going to build new hardware and new software. And they were making their own – they were going to use C++. And because C++ has – some problems with changing code dynamically. They they made their own thing called Delos and a few other things. And um, that project was running in the same building as as we were doing our work. The computer science lab and this project were in the same building. And after four six years, that project collapsed and, and just didn't work. The software didn't work, so they um, they restarted the project. And the hardware they'd built was okay. And uh, we'd been, we'd borrowed some of the hardware and, and had built um, prototypes in Erlang at the same time. And, and so at that stage, they, they said, well, well, we'll keep the hardware and, and we'll, we'll do it in Erlang. And, and they did. That became the AXD301. Um, and that was really the kind of breakthrough for Erlang in, inside, er- inside Ericsson. Um, but as I said, that, that, relied upon two accidents. One was the collapse of this big project. And and the other was that we knew about the collapse. The only reason we knew about it was we were in the same building. Okay. And we knew people. If if Ericsson's got big places all over Stockholm, if 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 and these were both south of Stockholm, if we'd been north of Stockholm and the collapsing project would have been south of Stockholm, we wouldn't have even known about it. I mean there are kind of barriers between divisions that so you don't really know what's going on. And, and, but we did know about it, and, and, and that happened. So that was the, p- the point at which it, it got adopted. And it wasn't, it wasn't because um, there was some plan to phase things out and phase new things in. It, it was a sort of, oh, we've got a catastrophe. Help! What the hell do we do? Oh, we can, you know, it's a dry, drowning men clutch at straws phenomena. Necessity is the mother of invention yeah. kind of thing. Well, actually, the, I, I, I should point out the... the we, f- I didn't form the lab. Mike Williams, one of my collaborators, uh, was one of the original formers of, of the Computer Science Lab, and, and I was, I joined it when it was two years old. And Bjarne Decker, he, he was the head of the lab, and we were very naive because we thought that we we thought the the sort of job of technology transfer was okay. So we do some research into Ericsson's problems. We hopefully invent some stuff that would make better solutions. You know, engineers sit around a table and, and and we all argue with each other. And if our solution is best, they'll use it. That's what we thought would happen. It doesn't work like that at all. <laughs> you know, there's company politics and all sorts of things involved. <laughs> Let's zoom out of history a bit and um, and talk, talk more about the language itself. Um, so... Erlang is a functional language, and speaking broadly, what are the advantages of a functional programming language? That you you don't have mutable state. I mean, mutable state mutable state is the root of all evil. It's terribly difficult to reason about programs with state. Um, state's horrible. So, so. But state is a state is a must have in 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 certain situations. So where 
is it about isolating the state in the database or what exactly? Uh, if you're forced to design in such a way that you have little mutable, well, I mean, destructive state. I mean, it's a mutable state. Where it's okay to change state and then you only use the latest value. You know, single assignment, that's like LOVM, the user's single assignment. What's, what's bad is using the old state, right? Because you, you, don't, you don't know how long it persists and you have trouble getting rid of it and so on. So, there are, so, so, so your job really is to design it so that this destructive state operations are used minimally. And you want to kind of design methodology that does that. And when you do mutate state, you want to do it in a very controlled fashion so, so that you, you see exactly what's going on. So, so yes, large functional programming will will have little little kind of dirty areas where, where things are not very nice, and, and I really want to keep that to a minimum. So, is this why managing concurrency is easier with a functional language? Um, it's one of the. It's not the only reason. It's one of the reasons. Yeah, I mean, I what mean, are the, the other? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you, if you don't have mutable state, you don't, you don't. I mean, a lot of concurrency have problems with locks and things. You have to lock your data so that two people can't mutate it at the same time. But if you can't mutate data, you don't need any locks. <laughs> so, so, so a whole lot of problems just vanish. It's, it's, not mm. like you, it's not like you solve them in a different way. You don't need to solve them at all because they don't exist. It's a different way of thinking. So you mentioned this a bit earlier, but what, what are some of the problems with object-oriented programming? And how do, how do those get fixed uh in, in in moving to functional languages uh it's all it's all this um state in in, in objects and all and also concurrency because oh, you, you see you like to the 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 object the way you teach object or you the the kind of conceptual model is you send messages to objects right and they have private state and they and their state changes but but you but they do this synchronously they don't do it asynchronously if you send them, and, and then they're actually not messages, they're disguised method calls, they're subroutine calls, right? So if, if, if you make, if you call on, if you send a message to an object, i.e. evoke a method that takes a very, very long time, right? You have to wait until that terminates before you go and do something else. So, so you don't have any, you don't have any natural concurrency there. So really, if you had, if you had, if you had a million core computer, which, a colleague of mine said, we'll have in 2019, and you have, you have a million processes, a million objects. You would put one object on each core. They'd be nicely isolated. They'd all run in parallel. Mm. But, but you don't have languages that – well, you do that in Alex, but you, you couldn't do that in Java. You couldn't take each object, each instance of an object, and stick it on a completely separate processor. Just wouldn't why did object? Why did object-oriented programming become so prevalent and so widely used? Probably because it's flawed. You see, if if, if I, I remember the um, well, <laughs> it's very difficult. Do you think it has to do with business requirements? Like object-oriented programming is is easy to communicate business requirements with. No, no you don't think so. No, uh, I, I I think Gosling said something which was very good. He he's, he's, he's well, he, he said at some stage, he said, Java isn't a programming language. It's an industry. <laughs> and I, th- I think I think he exactly right. That, that he put his finger on it totally. Java is an industry. 
Erlang is a programming language. There's a difference. Because, you know, viewed as an industry, Java has everything, right? You can buy embedded processors that will can be fit on a wafer or something like that you can you can you can put them you can etch them onto paper with you can make bus tickets out of them and boot them in a few seconds or you can build a server farm with them you can hire consultants you can embed them you can do everything you can hire consultants a lot Erlang's just a programming language i'm afraid it doesn't have all these other things so I, and I often see Erlang used as a message passing layer between other yes. languages like java um, how is that language interoperability typically implemented? And what's the motivation for it? Uh, through a serial, I mean, basically, Erlang refused, you, you, you're not allowed to uh, link. One of the things we're kind of religious about is Erlang is, will, when you interface it with something, you shouldn't link foreign code into it, right, into its kernel. Um, because if, if there were mistakes there, you could crash the Erlang system. So, so Erlang will only communicate through ports, which are just serial communication channels. So you have to serialize your data, and pass it and unpass it, and agree on some some uh, framing and some protocol. You might send JSON, or you might agree, okay, so we'll use TCP and we'll we'll send JSON messages or something like that. And then both sides have to implement that. Mm, right. Got it. Um, so functional programming seems to be exploring some something of a renaissance these days. Why do you think? Why do you think that is, or, or do you see it that way? Oh yeah, I agree. Um, I think the the I mean the fundamental problem we have with software is complexity. The control of complexity has has always been the the, the key problem that software engineers look at and. and the systems we are building are just more complex. So, so we, we need more powerful tools to, to, to understand them and build them. Yeah. You think oh, and also, the, uh... also, I think, think the available, I mean, if you go back to, um, in the, I think it's about the mid eighties or nineties that, that, I mean, remember language with garbage collection, like Java, Java, when Java first came, uh, the, the notion of using a, a garbage collected language for anything was very suspect. People, oh, we can't use garbage collection be fast <laughs> enough. Well, nobody says that today, you see. So, so you have to remember machines are, they, I mean, I don't know what the clock rate on this machine is I have in front of me. It's probably sort of two and a half gigahertz or something like that, or no, maybe slower, 1.8 gigahertz. But I mean, it, it would have been 4.6 megahertz in, in 1985. So that when the clock rate goes up by a factor of a thousand and the memory goes from, you know, mem- the machine we developed Erlang on had a clock rate of about four megahertz and about four megabytes of memory. Right. So you throw that on a machine with a, a four cores, two gigahertz clock, 16 gigabytes of memory. It is literally millions and millions of times faster. Okay. So so things that were slow um, can now be done very quickly. Now, functional languages were slow. The implementations are slow. You're doing a lot more work in the background to protect the user. You're running garbage collectors. You're doing all sorts of things. Um, so these assembler languages like C and so on, they're, 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 they are, of course, a lot faster, but, but we don't need the speed. There's very few applications right. that need speed, and then then I, I I see C as being in a nowhere nowhere land now. Um, 
and C++ because from what we know today is if, if you want to go fast, um, you should go down into hardware. You know, use FPGAs or Verilog or something like that and build a custom chip. And if you want to go, if you want to build an application, you can, you can use some, you know, use Python or Ruby or Perl or goodness, goodness knows what. I mean, they're fast enough. So, so where's C? Because if you want to go really fast, you're going to go to hardware. Point. And if you want to go, yeah, if you're building regular applications, um, just, just use a scripting language. And then I see we, we've sort of sorted out what we need. There was, there was this period of confusion, I think, in the um, 90s or something like that. We didn't, know, we didn't know which video standards and which video chips and, and which wireless chips to, to put in. Um, and then the things, things come along and, and uh, you, you see a technique shift. So, so, for example, Ericsson invented Bluetooth. And, and, and now you see Bluetooth... It took quite a long time to 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 adopt, um, but now you see Bluetooth sort of popping up all over the place, and I, I don't think there's going to be another sh- te- technical shift because I don't know which problem it would solve. You know, Bluetooth's good enough for audio and video and and you know, communication within about five to ten meters. It's fine. And I remember the Bluetooth people t- saying, um, "Well, Bluetooth will will dominate," and they said, "Why?" And they said, "Well, because of Bluetooth." connector is cheaper than a physical connector in terms of raw materials i mean a, a physical connector is made out of copper and whatever and a, a contact and that costs money the chip mm. is cheaper it uses less raw materials so ultimately it's going to win through and it's better than a, and it's better than a physical connector how has the erlang community changed over time uh pretty radically i mean it was <laughs> up up to up to Erlang being open source, it was just entirely inside Ericsson. And, and with, oh, maybe 100 universities or, or so we had, had got, used to send it out subject to a non-disclosure agreement. And then it became open source. And, and then then it became a community and so on. And then, so, I mean, you know, now there's many, 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 many times more users outside Ericsson than inside Ericsson. And so, yeah. So, so that changed with open source. Um, so, so speaking of of Ericsson, um, one of your colleagues from Ericsson, Michael Williams, wrote that software development is an art, not a science. Yes. And if you are going to produce art, you need the best tools. Erlang. Yeah. Uh, are there any aspects of this quote that you disagree with? No. No, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I view programming as a craft. I mean, it, 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 it's, it has all the aspects of a craft. You, you, you have to learn it from, you know, experts at it, the masters. You know, you study at their feet and, you, and it takes a long time to do it. I mean, it's not, it's not the, and I think the difficulty is not in learning a programming language or anything like that. I mean, you have, um, f- first of all, you've got programming languages. Once you've learned a few of them, though, you pick them up pretty quickly. But you don't know the libraries and you don't know how to go about building something. Um, and, and that takes a long time to learn. And then once you've learned that, um, th- there are different ways of thinking about systems. Um, I, I, was, I was, it was quite funny. I was, I was talking to a colleague of mine, Christian Schulter, who's uh, he's made uh, GE code. And he's, he's possibly the world's best constraint logic programmer. Uh, and we're talking about how you think about problems. And I, I was saying that, well, 
if you were an object, I, I, I also talked to Simon Thompson, he's a functional programmer. So how, how, how do you think about, how do you break down problems if you're a functional programmer? He said, well, functional programmer said, you think about the types first. You think about the types. What types am I manipulating? And then you think about the functions that manipulate instance of these types. That's what a functional program does. And if you're an object-oriented program, you say, what do you think about? We think about objects. Which objects do I have in my system? What method should they have? So, and, yeah. and, then I, and, and then I thought, well, and I thought, well, what do I think about first? I think about the concurrency first. I think, which, which concurrency? You know, what is the concurrency of my problem? That's the first thing I think about. What do I, which, which thing do I represent as a process? And then I think, if you were a prolog program, you'd say, what do you think about first? You see, the relationships. That's the first thing you think about. And I thought, I'd, and, and, and if you're an imperative program, what do you think about state? Uh, and then I asked Christian, I said, I thought I'd covered them all. I said, what do you think about first? He said, the constraints. That's the first thing I think about. Hmm. What are the constraints in the problem? So I, th- I think these, these ways of thinking are difficult. So uh, if, if I've been programming, you know, for 40 years. So once you've been programming that long, it's all very well to say to a new newcomer, you know, well, for every problem, there's a best language to use, which, which I kind of believe. Um, and you should choose the best language that's appropriate to your problem. But if they only know Java, how can they do that? <laughs> I guess that's you know. You look at me. It's sort of if I know I know fifteen programming languages. So we'll solve that. I'll do it in Prolog. Do that in Lisp. Do that in whatever you know. So what? So, are the, so what do you say if you only know one language? Use use a Java. You know, use a mini canrem or something like that or you know use a sort of library that, that simulates logic programming inside your job so so you're clearly kind of bearish on java are you also bearish on the jvm languages like scala i'm i i'm horrified by i i go to big conferences uh, i'm fortunate to be invited to these conferences and, and the big commercial conferences um, I, I see two enormous swathes of people wandering around and they're going, JVM, 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 JVM. And they go to all the JVMs, so, you know, they're interested in languages that run on the JVM. And there's another lot going around .NET, 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 and they, <laughs> and they go there. And then there's a small number of people who can build, you know, they can build their application on, on, on anything they feel like. Uh, and, and and I meet so many people who say, oh, I'd love to program in Erlang, but I can't. Why? Well, be- because our company, you know, the language you have to use has to be a JVM language because they deploy everything on the JVM. And I say, why is that? Well, our sysops don't know how to install anything else. <laughs> it's tragic. So everything gets implemented, you know, at least twice, for, you know, for JVM and for .NET. And it's exactly the same stuff. <laughs> So okay, so maybe this. Uh, it's, it's Microsoft. Uh, I mean, it's Microsoft and Sun Microsystems trying to lock you into their pathetically bad infrastructures. <laughs> yeah, uh, is this related to the? You gave this presentation called "The Mess We're In," and you argued that software is getting worse over time. Is this is this one of the reasons why you think software is getting worse? Um. Yeah. Well, it's a very big reason. I mean, the, the, the manufacturers lock in and their, 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 their refusal to sort of collaborate with each other is terrible. Uh, and also, I mean, the, 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 the,
absolutely dreadful today. If you if you look at, I, I, I was just trying to work out the combinatorics. If you wanted to build a web application, you you say, well, I need a, I need some, I need a CSS framework. Okay, so you you thought, oh goodness, how many of them are there? Hundred. <laughs> You go and, go and Google CSS frameworks. You'll find web pages saying the best 100 CSS frameworks. Goodness. Or the best 10 or 15. And then you want, um, what else would you want? Oh, you might you might want um, some sort of graphic stuff or some reactive frameworks, 15 of them. And you might want a programming language. Uh, well, how many programming languages have we got? 2,500? Start multiplying all these together. You know, the number of CSS frameworks times the number of reactive frameworks times the number of programming languages times that's, that's your decision space. It's fast. And so, of course, people, people then have, have this anxiety about, um, well, have I chosen the right framework? Oh, goodness. So I've given up all, I mean, I'm, I always get criticized by my, my, I, I was going to do some graphics in, in the browser and I thought, oh, it's only, there's only one thing I like, actually, scalable vector graphics. And I, and I thought, um, I always go into this kind of mental loop that, that and I, it starts out, like I think, hmm, yes, I want to do some graphics in the browser. I don't know much about that. Wait a moment. Somebody must have, I'll, I'll search for SVG frameworks. So I search for them on the net and I find there's 15 of them. Oh, goodness. So, so I start looking at them. And every single one has got its little church of people who say, oh, this is really great. This is fantastic. You should learn this. And, and you choose one of them and you start learning it. And then you find there's something you can't do. Oh, shit. And then you, oh, oh dear, I chose the wrong framework. And of course, you feel guilty about it because there's so much choice. So if you made a wrong choice, it's your fault. It's not their fault. They've been ever so helpful in making all this stuff available. So it must be your fault okay. if you can Okay, can't. but I'm not, I'm not clear because is. Are you more concerned about the the paralysis of of wide choice, or are you more worried about well, I think, the I think, constraints of login? Well, I, well, from... I think, well, I think, well, both, because then okay. you get to a mental mindset. There, there, there are certain, if you like, what appear to be received truths in in management and in programming that, are, that I, I I just think are totally absurd. One one view is that that writing something from scratch yourself. Is going to take a lot longer than using a framework that somebody else has made, and mm. and, and I always think it's if it's fine if frameworks and libraries they represent abstractions. If you understand exactly what those abstractions are, and they can save you a lot of time. But if you don't really understand what they are, I mean, programming by googling is not a very good way of solving problems. I mean, it, it is absolutely dreadful way of solving problems. So so I, I think I was I was trying to learn Swift. Do you know Swift? Have you tried the latest version of Swift? Uh, I haven't tried it. I know what it is. Yeah, don't. I mean, goodness gracious me! Something. How can how can you make how can how can Apple release examples that don't even compile? You know, you get the consistent set of things and you click on them and they don't even work. You know, I mean, and how can you make radical changes between you know, between two versions of the language without telling anybody? You know, it's it's dreadful. And and so, basically, basically. Basically, you have one school of programming, which is not based around the idea of a small number of primitives which you combine. You have large libraries which export thousands of primitives, and you, and you, you kind of Google looking for the solution to your problem. 
And that's a way of locking people into these products, which, which is, mm. which is very bad. So as I, as I said, now it's got three primitives for concurrency. It's got send, uh, receive and spawn. Okay. There aren't a thousand primitives and they're very easy to learn. So uh, back to my JavaScript example, you see, I get, I, I, I quite like writing JavaScript, but my interaction with the DOM, I use two things, you know, document.getElementById and, and, you know, returns an ID and then you can do X dot inner HTML equals something. That's easy. I know HTML. I know I, I only need to, that's the interface between JavaScript and the DOM that I need. I can hit everything with that. And then I just write my own libraries and people look at me very strangely and say, um, you write your own frameworks. Yeah. I'm a full stack developer. I make the bloody programming language of the libraries, the frameworks and everything. You know, it's, um, uh, and they said, Oh, you're going to say you're good to good to take you a, a lot of time. No, it's quicker. I think that's why it's a craft. You know, I'm I'm uh, one of my hobbies. I'm, I'm learning leatherwork, and, and it's really nice because the tools I use are well. One of them's I, I talked to the guy. The, the actual tools I'm using are hundreds of years old. They haven't changed for hundreds of years. It's quite nice to use things which are hundreds of years old. You know. We're not using tools that are hundreds of years old. We're using tools that were made last week. <laughs> they don't work. <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah. It's so, so somewhere, you know, somewhere we've got to change. When I started programming, you know, I could choose. Well, I couldn't choose at all. It was Fortran or nothing. That was the only language you could use. So there's no, there's no kind of decision problem there. <sighs> Just imagine how nice that would be. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, well, I mean, well, it's interesting because, you know, Erlang uh, is has become the time-tested uh, thing that people choose for for a certain mm. um, a, a certain well-defined vertical. And um, and it's just, it's the thing you use. Um, so that's, I mean, that's certainly a good sign, at least. Um, so, okay, I, well, I guess to close off, I mean, what, what are the, what drives what you're working on these days? And what, what are you focused on? I actually the, the the stuff that well I, I wrote a PhD thesis and, and that was in, entitled um, uh, making reliable I can't remember the exact title making reliable software from something components that can fail or something like that I, I have I, get, I go back to um, what von Neumann and, and Turing said about the, they von Neumann was thinking about software elements or computers as biological things that, that, that would fail and would evolve and grow. And, and my particular, the, what I specialized in was, was in fault-tolerant software. So um, Erlang, is, sort of Erlang is, is, if you like, the answer to a question, but you don't ask me what the question was. So what was the question? The question was, you know, how do you, how do you build software that is fault-tolerant in the presence of software errors? that we know we're going to write buggy software, but despite that fact, how, how can we kind of get around that? And, and so my, my, my interest has been on building systems at work, basically that work all the time forever. And, you know, mm. my, 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 my notion would be that you turn it on and there's no off button because you'll never turn it off and it'll run forever. And it, you won't stop it and change it. It will evolve with time. And so I'm totally horrified by by all, all this software that just doesn't work, you know, mm. it doesn't work, and and you know the, the number of the number of devices which um, uh, 
Travis Strange, because among among my among my non-computer friends, um, they they you know because I'm a professor of computer science, they ask me questions which they think they think they're kind of well. I don't know how this stuff works, but somebody knows how it works. So Joe knows how it works because he's a professor, right? And so, and I, I feel terribly frustrated in having to say, "Well, have you tried rebooting it?" <laughs> that is, that is, that is not, you know, the, the 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 highest pinnacle of functional programming is well, if it doesn't work, just pull the power cable out, power cycle it, you know, because that's what computing has been reduced to. That we have so many devices, and you phone up support and they say, "Have you rebooted it?" <sighs> We had, we we had we had fibre installed in, in in our apartments about two weeks ago, and, and the modem, the guy who they spliced on the modems, and I, mine was one of the ones that didn't work. And, and there's some lights on the panel, and, and uh, the engineer bloke, the guy who was installing it, came in and and he cast an eye over all the lights, and all the lights were green. One of them, the, one of them was blue, and the others were green and something. And he said, "Oh, it's all working." And I said, "No, it's not." And he said, yes, yes, it is. Look, the internet lights up. I said, the light might well be shining, but it doesn't bloody well work, I said. <laughs> and, and he said, yes, it does. And he thinks I'm old fools. He said, well, well, you connect your computer into it and show me what I'm doing wrong then. And he connected his computer. He said, that's funny. It doesn't work. So that's what I told you. <laughs> you know, so, so we have a reliance on... on um, now, it didn't really matter when you only have one thing that didn't work, but now we daisy-chain them all together. So, um, you know, now we have long sequences of things that rely upon the next thing that's, um, uh, that it functions correctly. And, and I, I, I'm, collecting, uh, I'm collecting sort of horror stories from my, some of my next lectures or books. Um, I don't know if you've <laughs> seen the ones about, you know, the smart light bulbs that got hacked and... and, and uh, <laughs> And the smart- no, I haven't. I haven't heard about those. Oh no, there's a, some company making smart light bulbs, and they they were using AES one two eight encryption. So so some hackers managed to hack the light, the firmware in the light bulbs, uh-uh. and by that listen to the Wi-Fi net, and thereby get access to the entire Wi-Fi net and steal all the passwords and things on the Wi-Fi nets. Great. Well, it's lovely, isn't it? I mean, we're moving there to this Internet of Things, where where virtually every- oh the other one was was the, the smart kettles that got hacked. <laughs> Yeah, I had a I had an interview with Vic Surf, and he was talking about how one of his biggest concerns is like refrigerators uh, ddosing a bank. Like, you don't want that to happen, but it's that's a, a that's a potentiation in our future. Well, one of the one of the things that, uh, that I saw Vince was was worried about was was um, I, I was saying to my wife, I think, um, golly, because we got this new convicted. Do you, do you know where I've got all my you know the family. I, I, I'm the responsible for the computers in our household. Guess why? Um, so, so I set them all up, and my wife uses them. And she, oh, that's great! You know, it all works. And so, so she happily looks at family photos and things. And so, well, here, if I were to drop dead, would you would you know where all those photos are? How you access them? You know the passwords you need to get into Dropbox. And oh no 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 no, oh. Oh dear! Hmm, I better write all these down. And then I said, "Well, hang on. When we're both dead, will our will our ancestors be able to find these photos? Because she's interested in genealogy, and we have all these old photos of people from you know the, from when the first photos were taken, old withered photos, and on the back it's written who they are and things. In in two generations' time, are people going to find these digital photos? 
I don't think so because we're we're paranoid over security now because of the Snowden revelations and everything. So so not only will our, our cloud providers um, provide us with storage, they'll also encrypt everything like hell. So how are we going to get these crypto keys to our great great grandchildren? Anyway, they haven't been paying. Whoops, no. Uh, sorry, your account has expired because your great great grandchild didn't pay for it. So we're going to lose history. Vin Cerf was 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 concerned about that as well. Yeah, this is the internet dark dark age. I think yeah, I mean, there's going to be like we'll go back and if we survive for another thousand years. So hang on, wait a moment, we just lost eight hundred years of history. Oh, sorry, there's a backup. Yeah. No, but somebody's forgotten the password. <laughs> So I think we're in this kind of we, we, the internet age or the, the computer age is in. I mean, it's not very old. The first program ran in 1948, so it's it's pretty. You know, it's not very old at all. We don't know what we're doing yet. It's true. <laughs> it's quite fun. Yeah. Well, Joe Armstrong, thanks so much for coming on to Software Engineering Daily and uh, and chatting with me yeah. for uh, for so long. It's it's been a really interesting conversation and. Um, and I'm really, I'm really grateful for your, uh, your work on Erlang. It's been really important in computer science. Yeah, thank you. Yes, nice talking to you. <laughs>